Hi, this is Oliver Hibbert. Welcome to People at Work, a series of podcasts designed to help you get the most out of yourself, the best out of others, and the best out of the organisation you work for. The first four of these podcasts are all going to be about heuristics. And um, we're going to talk about one heuristic in particular today, which is the contrast heuristic. And I think this is something that's really important to know about because it's something that people use a lot at work without knowing it. And it's something that can help you at work, but it's something that can also get you into trouble at work. And we're going to talk a bit about that. Um, But first of all, let's look a little bit at what a heuristic is. A heuristic is a mental shortcut to a decision. In other words, it's a quick way of reaching a decision that might otherwise take you quite a lot of time. Example, in a consumer setting, you're choosing a product in the supermarket and you see that one product is labelled 20% discounted. Now, you don't really have the time or the inclination to check the prices and specs of all the products available and calculate which is really the best value. But a 20% discount looks like an indication of value. So you choose the product. You've just used a heuristic. Think about the process you went through. You could have asked yourself a difficult question. What's the price quality ratio on these products? But you've speeded the decision up by substituting a much easier question. Which product is discounted this week? And that's what a heuristic does. It substitutes an easy question for a difficult one. In this case, you've used the contrast heuristic, which works by making quick comparisons rather than working out absolute values. 20% difference between RRP and offer feels like a good deal. I won't bother spending too much time analysing all the other products and prices that are out there. Now, this is really useful stuff. Life's too short for you or for me to spend too much of it building Excel spreadsheets to compare the relative price quality of dishwashing tablets. So the contrast heuristic will get you out of the supermarket quicker. That's the whole reason why heuristics exist. They're quick and they often work. Not using them would paralyse your day-to-day decision-making. But there are a few things we need to think about. And the first one is this. When you use a heuristic, you're not usually aware that you're using it at all. We reach for the discounted items automatically. Heuristics are very quick. They're automatic. They don't engage the conscious brain at all. So we use them all the time without knowing it. So that's the first point. Heuristics are zero effort. They're unconscious. The second point is that heuristics usually work. Discounts usually offer value. Most of the time you're going to make a good decision by using a heuristic and you're going to save time. But heuristics don't always work. There are some situations in which it might be better to analyse the situation more closely before you make a decision. And in fact, the supermarket's full of potential decision traps like that. So that's the second point. Heuristics are fallible. And the third point is this, because heuristics are unconscious and because they're fallible, it's quite easy for someone to use a heuristic against you to manipulate your decision-making process in their favour 
Now, this hidden influencing might be quite benign. Richard Thaler uses the phrase decision architecture to describe how government, for example, can use heuristics to nudge people towards making better decisions about retirement plans or health. But the hidden persuaders might also simply be after your money or your vote. And they might not want you to think too much about the process. Maybe that supermarket decision discount isn't quite real. So that's the third point. Heuristics are the point in your decision system that gives access to a hacker. Quick, unconscious, fallible, hackable. If I want to sell you a product, I might find it works to fix an artificially high RRP and then discount it heavily. If I want to sell you a house, I might find it works to show you another, much less attractive house before. If I want to sell you a rather expensive bottle of wine, I might point out an even more expensive bottle first. As Daniel Kahneman says, we don't make decisions on the basis of information, we make decisions on the basis of the presentation of information. So someone who knows how they work can play heuristics in their favour. Maybe the product that was 20% discounted in the supermarket wasn't actually the best value product. Maybe the supermarket has successfully used the heuristic against me. Your daily life as a consumer is full of marketers using heuristics to steer your decisions like this. You look for a plane ticket on a website and the website thoughtfully tells you that there are only two seats left at that price. You better make up your mind fast. That's the scarcity heuristic. When you get to booking the hotel, the website thoughtfully tells you that five other people are looking at the same room for your dates. It must be a good deal. That's the social proof heuristic. You go into a restaurant and you look at the menu and at the top of the list of main dishes is something really very expensive, Wagyu beef or Norcia truffles or something. And at the bottom of the list is something pretty cheap. Where are you going to choose? Well, there's a scientific answer to this. Most people are going to choose an item in the middle. And maybe the expensive item at the top was put there simply to make the items immediately below look a little bit less extravagant. And maybe the cheap item at the bottom is there simply to make the items above look a little bit more indulgent. So you go towards what marketers call the magic middle heuristic. In each case, the presentation of information, as Thaler and Kahneman say, is deliberately structured to get your brain asking those very simple unconscious questions that will steer your choice. Technically, this is a hack that exploits the fact that our minds process this kind of price information ordinarily through comparison rather than cardinally in terms of absolute values. The hospitality industry, incidentally, charmingly calls this menu engineering. Bon appétit. Heuristics are a big part of the marriage between economics and psychology that has come to be called behavioural economics. And behavioural economics over the past 20 years has moved from being something that was quite marginal to something that's at the centre of a lot of marketing strategies, government campaigns and 
as we will see, quite a lot of management thinking as well. You can't talk about heuristics and behavioural economics without talking about Daniel Kahneman, who I've already mentioned twice. Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002, which was not bad considering that he's a psychologist. And in 2017, another behavioural economist won the Nobel Prize for Economics, Richard Thaler. Now, in a sense, what Kahneman and Thaler and a lot of other people in their field do is something that psychologists have done for the last hundred years. They tell us that our minds work on two levels and that the bit you're aware of, the, the bit you're not aware of, the unconscious level, is often more powerful than the bit you're aware of, the conscious level. Kahneman and Thaler and their fellow practitioners aim to explore and explain the unconscious part of our behaviour. Freud was doing that a hundred years ago. And in a sense, Kahneman and Thaler are doing the same thing now, but there's a crucial difference. Freud told us stories. Kahneman and Thaler tell us statistical, experimental, empirical truth. The mother load for anyone wanting to get into heuristics, and they are really important at work, is Kahneman's bestseller, Thinking Fast and Slow. This is a kind of department store full of heuristics, always backed up by research. Reading the book is quite a worrying experience. You'll never feel quite the same about yourself after you've read it. It's worrying because you realise that the explanations you give yourself and others for your decisions are often not the real explanations at all. And what's worse is that the real explanations are simply unpresentable. They make you feel and look stupid. You can't admit to yourself or anyone else that you bought something because everyone else was buying it. That's the social proof heuristic. Or because the salesman told you it was the last one. That's the scarcity heuristic. So you concoct a plausible explanation based on the characteristics and the price of the product. In Kahneman's terminology, your system one, that's the unconscious part, has made a decision. And your system two, that's the conscious part, has invented a story to justify it. Notice that one comes before two. When we look at why we've done something, we can always produce a plausible reason. Human beings very rarely say, I don't know why I did that. But psychologists suggest that we should actually say it more often. Freud calls this the unconscious and the conscious. Kahneman calls them system one and system two. I went here, Dr. Freud tells us that we don't really know why we're doing what we're doing. It's, of course, very irritating. Reading Dr. Kahneman is sometimes very irritating too, because it's frustrating, it's even humiliating to be told that your version of why you do things doesn't actually correspond to reality. It's not great to be told that your rational buying decision was an illusion. The insight that we're often strangers to ourselves is not a very welcome one. But while we can dispute Freud's version of the unconscious because it's based on single cases and intuitive theory, Kahneman's version of our unconscious is based on observation and experiment and statistical analysis. We can't ignore it. It's really there. But what does this mean for work? Let's look for a moment at how the contrast heuristic affects managers. 
So we've agreed that heuristics are easy questions that we substitute for difficult questions. Now, managers need to answer all kinds of difficult questions. In fact, very often they have to answer impossible questions. Here are two questions that most managers face quite often. When recruiting, how do I know this candidate will be the best choice? When evaluating a team member's performance, how do I rank my team member's performance? And these aren't just difficult questions. Realistically, they're often impossible questions. An hour interview, a couple of peer interviews can't possibly give you enough information to answer the first question. Unless you work in sales, it's very unlikely that you have enough objective data on your team performance to answer the second. So what happens is that we begin to substitute easier questions for these very difficult ones. In judging performance, the big question is, what do I know about the real performance of this guy on my team? Now, this feels very much like a question you should have an answer to. But I know from talking to a lot of team leaders that when they're completely honest, they estimate that they're around 50 or 60% sure of their judgment of this guy's performance. There are some jobs, sales jobs particularly, where that's not true because you can numerically evaluate performance quite easily. But in most jobs, the numerical measures you use don't quite add up to a full picture of performance. And in any case, so much work now takes the form of team effort rather than individual effort that it's difficult to know who's really doing the heavy lifting. So the team leader finishes up judging based on a perception of performance, not an objective performance measure. When you think about that, it's a pretty devastating thought. We talk so much about managers and companies driving performance, but very often we don't even know what performance is. So when you're looking at your team member, Anne, and you're thinking about her performance, you can't ask yourself the big question, which is, what is Anne's performance? Because you don't really have an answer to that. It's too difficult. So you substitute a series of simpler questions. And the simpler questions are something like, does she look engaged? Does she get on with the rest of the team? Does she usually look busy? Is she proactive? These are, are nice heuristics, but they're not scientific questions at all. They're very subjective judgments. And this really matters because once we've made a judgment about somebody, whether it's a job candidate at a very early stage of the interview, or whether it's a team member in the first few weeks of work, that decision tends to stick. Think of it this way. Your mind tries to be ecological. Rather than expend a lot of energy on long decision processes, it came up with heuristics. It behaves in the same way when it comes to changing your mind. Once you've made your mind up, changing it feels like an expense of energy. So rather than change it, we tend to double down on our first decision. That, by the way, is called the sunk costs heuristic. Let's look at the evidence. A few years ago, two researchers at IMD, Jean-Francois Manzoni and Jean-Louis Barsou, wrote a book called The Setup to Fail Syndrome, which really takes the contrast effect to the heart of the way we manage people. Their research worked like this. They asked a group of bosses, conveniently participants on IMD executive programs, 
to divide their teams into two groups, good group A and bad group B. And they then said, well, do these people know what group they're in? And the bosses replied, well, no, because the very good guys know they're very good and the very bad guys know they're very bad. But most people are somewhere in the middle, so they receive mixed feedback. But actually, as Manzoni and Barsu discovered, people do know. They know if they're in group A or group B. And when you think about that, it's quite interesting. How do they know? Their bosses hardly know it themselves. They're using heuristics, remember. But their people are reading it from a set of small signals. The boss spends time with this guy, but he doesn't spend time with me. The boss asks for this person's advice, but she never asks for my advice. The boss delegates fully to this lady, but she doesn't delegate to me. And the combination of all these micro-signals adds up to the big message that you're in Group A or Group B. Um, Manzoni and Barsu conclude that up to 90% of all bosses treat subordinates either as, as though they're part of an in-group or they're consigning people to an out-group. And this is all about performance perceptions. It's not about performance. But once your perception is there, it resists change, it grows legs, it influences your actions, it makes things happen. If you're in group A, I give you more opportunity. You learn more. I stretch you more. You develop more. If you're in group A and you screw up, I tend to put it down to negative circumstances. I don't blame you. If you're in group B, I don't give you so many chances. I watch you more carefully. I don't give you that many learning opportunities. And crucially, I don't give you that empowering sense that I trust you to do good work. And as a result, you learn less, you develop more slowly. And if you screw up, my reaction is, hmm? I told you so. You see where this goes. Team members in Group A will tend to get better, just as the team members in Group B will tend to get worse. In other words, the thing in your head has got out into the world and it's making its own reality. If you add this to the idea that 50% of your performance perception is subjective, you get a vision of performance management that's a lot less scientific and objective than it's usually presented to be. Manzoni and Barsu explain why managers categorise, and I quote, it makes life easy. It saves time by providing rough and ready guides for interpreting events and interacting with others. The downside of categorical thinking is that in organisations it leads to premature closure. Having made up his mind about a subordinate's limited ability and poor motivation, a manager is likely to notice supporting evidence while selectively dismissing contrary evidence. That is a pretty clear description of the contrast effect in action at work. Thank you very much for listening. That's the end of the first of these podcasts, People at Work, and I hope very much that you'll join me next time. In the meantime, any comments, drop me a line at oliver at allintel.com. I'll be back very soon, and in the meantime, you stay safe and stay well. Bye.